Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003 and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. So the biggest thing was permission for me. Um, permission to write about a lot of different things. I mean, I'm a generalist, right? So I don't necessarily have a singular beat. And so a big part of it was giving myself permission to lean into all of these various parts of my identity, my various interests. It's really important to give yourself that and to also know that what you have to offer by virtue of just existing as a person of color in the world, as a queer person in the world, um, it gives you a very interesting lens into the world around you and that you should really center that and really um, find the value and meaning in that. Well, folks, today on the podcast, it is my pleasure to welcome on Mitchell Kuga, a class of 2009 graduate who earned a degree in magazine from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. He is a freelance journalist living in Honolulu, Hawaii, a little bit envious about the climate he gets to experience uh, compared to the central New York weather, which had snow uh, most recently. But uh, Mitchell is a fascinating alumnus we're going to talk with here on the podcast. He, again, has been published in all sorts of magazines and publications, including GQ, T Magazine, and Condé Nast Traveler. He is a 2019 recipient of the Excellence in Online Journalism Award from the NLGJA, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. And recently, he was part of a virtual celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Kuga spoke virtually about growing up as a fourth-generation Japanese-American, how he used his writing to learn more about himself and his identity, and the transition from going Hawaii to Syracuse and back. He's now, of course, living in Hawaii, like we mentioned. Mitchell, thank you for making the time today. Thanks for having me, John. I, I really find it fascinating, the, the people that we choose to profile on the podcast. Everyone's got such a great and diverse story. And I reached out to you because our colleague uh, Huey had mentioned you speaking during Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. It's one of the many cultural celebrations we have at Syracuse University. What was your reaction when you were first contacted to uh, to speak during these prestigious uh, celebrations? I was shocked. Um, I did not know that anyone at the school was keeping tabs on what I was doing. I didn't know that what I was doing was worth um, highlighting in any kind of way. And so it was really touching and, and an honor truly to be asked. Um, I realized after that, uh, Dr. Parrish, who was my professor in college, was the one who kind of made the whole thing happen. And so just really touched that um, she thought of me and that we got to reconnect over the event as well. She helped moderate some of the questions. What was it about, and I know it's, it's, it's always interesting as a, as a journalist to turn the question and focus around on yourself versus you being the one asking the questions. 
what do you think it was about your story that resonated and made you someone that would be interesting to bring on board for this series? Yeah, I think the, well, to your first point, I absolutely love being in your position um, over the one I'm in currently. I'm very happy asking the questions and very uncomfortable answering them. Um, I think that the thing that that made my story appealing was probably the intersectionality of it. I write a lot about being queer and being Asian and the intersections of those two identities. Um, and so I want to say that that was part of it. I don't know. I also know that um, Dr. Parrish saw my wedding in the New York Times. And so that might have been part of it too. <laughs> Congratulations, mostly, of course, on your nuptials. I'm mostly joking about that, but she did mention it jokingly. So I thought I would bring it up. <laughs> when it comes to, um, and, and again, the, the whole month of April, we've been celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And you spoke as part of the Paving the Way Alumni Speaker Series virtually earlier in April. Give our audience a little bit of the crux of what your speech was all about and what the lessons you wanted the audience to take away from it happened to be. So the biggest thing was permission for me. Um, I realized while I was thinking through my career that that was a really big theme for me, especially when I was younger, especially when I was in college. Um, it was permission to write about a lot of different things. I mean, I'm a generalist, right? So I don't necessarily have a singular beat. And so a big part of it was giving myself permission to lean into all of these various parts of my identity, my various interests. And then also, I think as um, a queer Asian person as well, I think often seeking permission from mostly white institutions as well. And so I really wanted to just impart that it's really important to give yourself that and to also know that what you have to offer by virtue of just existing as a person of color in the world, as a queer person in the world, um, it gives you a very interesting lens into the world around you and that you should really center that and really um, find the value and meaning in that through your work. It's interesting to hear you talk about seeking permission because I think a lot of people who don't come, and pardon my generalizations, but who don't have a marginalized background aren't used to having to seek permission to do something, having to seek permission in the way that they conduct themselves. And that's obviously different for people who do come from those marginalized communities. When did you realize that this was something different for you that you would have to contend with? And what was that seminal moment that led you to realize, I, you know what, permissions, okay, I need to seek them. But once those get sought, I'm doing what makes me happy because, you know, you got one life to live in this go-round. Yeah. I mean, I think it happened on a really fundamental level for me, just in terms of existing, right? Like, I think I talked about this spread in Details Magazine um, that was satire, but the, the satire was this question of gay or Asian. And for me, that was like a really real question at the time, because I felt like I couldn't give myself permission to be both. It felt as a teenager often that I would have to choose between one or the other or that one identity would sort of compromise the integrity or the, the purity of the other one, right? Like there was this sort of tension between those two. And I think a big part of it for me anyway was, was very cultural. Like I feel like being Japanese in Hawaii 
for one, was not something I ever thought of as political. Like there's so many Japanese people here that I kind of felt very centered growing up and there's such an abundance of Asian identity. Um, but also politically, like during World War II, a lot of Japanese people here were not incarcerated, like the rest of Japanese people on the mainland. A lot of Japanese people here, because there were so many of us, um, were spared because they needed us for the economy to function. And so the only people who got incarcerated in Hawaii were people who were very prominent, people who were prominent business owners, political people in the community, and everyone else by virtue of being invisible by blending in um, was spared. And I think of the contrast between say AIDS activists who employed completely different political tactics, right? Like they were all about disruption and being loud in the face of government neglect because that was what was needed for their movement. And I think, um, both of those things kind of inform the way that that contrast between my queerness and my Asianness kind of butted up against each other in some ways. Like you had this very like brash political, um, very fiery LGBTQ movement. And then this, to my mind at the time, a very seemingly like keep your head down, blend in sort of Japanese culture in Hawaii. Um, and so, yeah, just trying to reconcile that for myself was an act of permission, I think. Was there, and, and it, I, I love the the perspective again of going in and how there's this this inner tension between you know your, your Japanese heritage again. I mentioned you're a fourth generation Japanese American, and then identifying yourself as a as a queer Asian and the contrast that those two um, that you mentioned so eloquently um, were at play within yourself. I guess besides seeking permission, what other key can you give us as to how you resolved that tension? Yeah, I mean, I think process is a really important word because it feels like one of those things that you're constantly trying to negotiate and figure out. I don't think that I've like reached some kind of pinnacle of like um, queer Asian excellence or that I've like fully reconciled both strains, but it feels it feels like a process. I feel like a big part of it for me was moving well, for one, in, at Syracuse, I did end up meeting a lot of queer Asian people as well. And a lot of my friends were queer and Asian. And then moving to New York City and moving to Brooklyn after that, and then really finding community with queer Asian people, not as a way to like feel like our, our identities were flattened or that we were just sort of like all the same. I, I feel like the acknowledgement was very much about the the differences and the nuances and the richness of, of what it means to be queer and Asian. But um, I think seeing it in other people really, really helped. Cause I, I think that was a big part of it growing up was, was not seeing it very often or at all really. There's just not anything on the screen that I could really point to. Um, and I know representation is just such a small sliver of this conversation, but absolutely growing up, that was something that I, didn't see that I really wanted to see. In any walk of life, if you don't see yourself represented in, I want to say represented, but the affirmative is so important because it has to be, you need to see the positive encouragement. You need to see yourself and who you are represented, whether it's movies, books, you know, TV shows, in music, it helps to have that affirmation. And to hear you talk about Syracuse and your time on the Hill how much of a large role did Syracuse University play in helping you come to terms with your identity? 
It was huge. It was so huge. I mean, I think I, I, I came to Syracuse a little bit during headlights. I mean, it was complete culture shock for one. I wish I could say that I had no idea that it was like in upstate New York and I, it was like super close to New York City or something because that would make a better story. But I knew I knew where it was. <laughs> I knew that it was like, you know, a good six hours outside. I knew that it was pretty remote. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was really my first um, Asian American studies class, which is um, what Dr. Parrish taught. That's how I met Dr. Parrish. Uh, she, she was my professor. And, you know, kind of entering the class thinking that this would be an easy A, like I'm, I'm Asian, I'm American, like what is there to really learn? They're going to just give me the A. Um, and then realizing that there was this whole, this whole history, this whole lineage that um, I wasn't really aware of. As I said, I, I don't think I really thought of being Japanese in Hawaii, being fourth generation Japanese in Hawaii to be a particularly political identity. And so, um, you know, that first class was really eye-opening to me, learning about the murder of Vincent Chin, learning about the LA riots, learning about the model minority myth, like all of these frameworks um, that really gave me context for how to navigate what it meant to be a suddenly racialized body at Syracuse, which is how I would describe what it felt like there, like to understand what it meant to be suddenly marginalized, which is not something I, I grew up feeling necessarily, at least in terms of race. And so that coupled with the queer studies program, which was just starting at the time, really gave me such a rich foundation for understanding not only my identity, but also my work, because it that that my identity did end up becoming sort of a lens through which I, I wrote about culture. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that when you talk about the process behind, you know, your, your career and your writings. At what point did you realize um, that writing was something where you would use it as an expression and almost like a sense of of healing and discovery that writing could lead to understanding more about yourself and, and who you are? I knew that from a really young age. I learned that when I was probably in the fifth grade and it did coincide with me knowing that I was gay. Like knowing, at, knowing that at a pretty young age, not really being able to tell anyone or not being able to fully vocalize it or live it um, brought me to writing. It, it was really journaling that really did it for me. And, and it was a way to figure out what I thought, what I felt, what I desired. Um, and I think it's a really common thing for a lot of young queer people um, is to find meaning through journaling. Like there's such a tradition there, I think with journaling. Um, and so that was really it for me was like um, learning to write myself into existence from a pretty young age and then having that kind of translate into being that kid in high school who was like editing the yearbook and, um, you know, being very invested in, in English class. <laughs> and then, yeah, that translating to me um, applying to Syracuse and, and luckily getting into the New Health program because I wanted to study journalism. I wanted to study magazines. I mean, I think that 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 spread I mentioned earlier in details was really kind of a lightning rod for me in some ways. Cause I was like, oh, like people don't really know how to talk about these things. And um, I wanna talk about them. And so I want to 
be able to write things that a younger version of myself could potentially see themselves in. And, you know, magazines, when I was growing up, they were everything. They were, we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have um, these other outlets. And so that was really my, my cultural lifeline to like the rest of the continent, basically. And what is it about magazine journalism? It's, it's more of a long form medium uh, than especially with, you know, web articles. I mean, some of them are clickbait, 300 words, and then magazine, you have more space and more depth to go in and tell your story. What is it about that platform that really resonated with you? I love the juxtaposition that happens in magazines. I love that you can look at an editorial fashion spread that sells like $5,000 Hermes hats. And then the next page you can read about, um, you know, the conflict in Iran. Like there's, there's just so much space to play with different angles in terms of um, culture, not only visually, but also journalistically. I think for me, writing wise, magazines were always it because I think I'm a stylist. Like I, I think a lot about style in terms of sentences and being able to play with tone and voice and in, in these ways that I guess more traditional forms of journalism like newspapers don't allow for and so that part of it was always interesting to me I'm also very slow as a writer and so your point uh, about things being a little bit more evergreen and a little bit um, you can spend time on things which I really appreciate I really appreciate having time um, I think things happen so quickly now, but I think magazine writing still allows for there to be space. How would you describe um, the style of your writing and the style of the pieces that you've produced for those many publications that I've mentioned uh, earlier on? I think that's something that is constantly changing um, depending on the publication, depending on where I'm at in my life. Um, depending on how much coffee I've had in any given day. You know, I think, I think that it's, I mean, as I said, style is important to me, but I feel like it's something that I'm always taking on and off and trying on. And I think it's always evolving in a lot of ways. I think I'm always thinking about the reader in terms of someone who has like 50 tabs open on their laptop. And so I'm always trying to kind of, um, punch you in the gut a little bit in the beginning. Like I really am aware of the fact that people have so many ways to exit out of your, out of your piece. And just the fact that they're even there in the first place is like a huge privilege and you want to keep them there. And so I guess in some ways I am trying to be really urgent in the way that I communicate when I'm writing. What is it about that freelance lifestyle that really appeals to you? And, and how do you enjoy that challenge of, again, getting to kind of make your own way when it comes to your stories? I think for me, it, it really is important for me to not feel like I am either pigeonholed or trapped. I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of journalists who are in staff writer positions who have proven to be able to have a kind of flexibility. It is exceedingly rare to be able to kind of roam widely in your interests. And that's something that feels really important to me. And so um, from a freelance perspective, it's something that I'm able to give myself. I should also say that being a generalist for me is not something that I necessarily sought out to do. It was something that I think in journalism school was not really talked about. It was something, 
I feel like journalism school was very much about finding a beat and very much about um, finding a specialty, which I think is super valuable to be a specialist. It's just not something that resonated with me. And so, so much of it had to just had to do with just me responding to the world. It, was, it just happened to do with like paying attention and living my life. And I started out writing about food at first because I worked at a restaurant for a long time. I worked at a sushi place. Well, I, I waited tables at Blue Monkey in Syracuse during college. And then I found a waiting job in, in Brooklyn as well. And so part of it was just being around food for a long time and then finding this vocabulary by virtue of just living in it. Um, now, you, you talk about at, at Syracuse and at Newhouse um, how, you know, while many people were learning to specialize, you wanted to, you know, you, you learned to maybe be more general with, with your writing style and not just get pigeonholed into, a, into one beat. And that's important because it's good to know what you want to do versus what you don't want to do. That's a valuable lesson uh, of being a college student. What else are some of the biggest lessons that you took away from your time at Newhouse and at Syracuse that have served you well in your career? I think being nice is a really big one. <laughs> Sounds like really basic advice, but it, it really goes a long way. I mean, I think so much of what I've learned um, throughout my career is about connections and just being a nice person really when you meet people. I mean, Syracuse really exposed me to so many different kinds of people and it was really easy to make assumptions about who these people were based on you know my own ignorance. But I think also just being open-minded as well comes in handy. Um, I think, yeah, I think the really nice thing about going to Syracuse for me was really having this really broad university in terms of um, interest and scope. like. I don't think I necessarily thought I had permission to be a generalist in my writing, but I knew I was a generalist in terms of my academic pursuits. So for example, like there was a period where I thought I was going to transfer into the fashion department, which is like not something that you can do at like most schools, right? Just be like, oh, I'm going to like study fashion. But what I did instead was I probably took like 20 credits of fashion courses and realized like, oh, I don't necessarily want to design clothes. I just really like clothes. <laughs> um, but, you know, like having that ability to kind of pivot and to kind of dip my toe into many different ponds was really cool. Even in terms of just the English classes that I got to take were so fascinating to me. Like I, I took a course on animal religion. Like, what is that even? Literally studying like <laughs> the religions the animals had. I, I took a course on queer architecture. I took a course on like ghetto realisms, like, re, like literature from the ghetto. Like it was, there was just such a mind boggling array of topics that I was able to study. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like college at all. I mean, it feels rigorous and it feels like stimulating, but it was, it was also really fun. And so I think for me being able to really pick and choose, um, in any given semester, it looks so different. That was really cool. I want to go back to uh, one of the points you talked about, about being nice and <clears throat> the world could use that lesson in spades right now. There's been so much tumult and turmoil that we're dealing with here in 2021. And it's a, it's a tough segue, but I want to take that being nice and being nice to people and transition to some experiences that have gone on in this country. There's been such a rise in these incidences of bias, especially against Asian Americans uh, over the last year or so since the pandemic started. 
Um, and we've seen there's been issues all over the place of, of hatred and hate speech. And it's just, it's, it's unacceptable. What do you think from your perspective has been a reason behind this torrent of hate and violence? And have you experienced any of this either personally or in your, your social circles? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we had a president that racialized a global pandemic as a way to shield himself from his own mishandlings. And so I think that when you have someone in that position giving people power to do the same and to use Asian people as scapegoats, which by the way is not new, right? Like um, that has historically been the case for a really long time. I think Vincent Chin was an example of that. He was in a Chinese American auto worker in Detroit that got mistaken as being Japanese. His killers um, assumed that he was Japanese and taking away his jobs, their jobs at the car factory. And so they killed him. Um, the same is true of Japanese internment during World War II. I mean, it's just an ongoing thing. I think that the reckoning around race last year is informing the reckoning we're having now. Personally, I feel like I'm, I'm like, ethnically ambiguous enough, and this is my own privilege, that in Brooklyn, for example, people have called me Poppy. They've called me Cholo. I get like all kinds of things. I mean, I know it's not a backing necessarily. It's like always out of friendliness. But um, I what, my, what I mean to say is I, I don't think that I read necessarily as like super, super Asian in a way that might attract um, the same kind of violence that some people are experiencing. I have experienced comments before, um, both at Syracuse and also in New York, um, where it's just people saying stuff like chink or whatever, because you bump them on the shoulder, but nothing to the degree that we're seeing today. And I'm very grateful for that. I also, I feel a lot of guilt for living in Hawaii because as I mentioned earlier, it's so abundantly Asian here that I don't feel that kind of threat. Um, you know, there was a, there was a rally recently here for anti-Asian violence. And a lot of the questions that people had were like, why, why are you doing that in Hawaii? Like there's so many Asians, you guys are the, the majority. And Valid point, but also I, I do think that there's a lot of um, value in solidarity and for also being able to have a place where you can put a lot of my grief and anxiety. But yeah, it's an interesting place right now to to observe all of this from here. I know you're remote and removed from like, for example, New York City, but from afar, how have you seen the Asian American community really coming together to, to combat these injustices? Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, I think social media is one, it's obviously not enough, but it's a start. Um, I've been seeing a lot of rallies between Asian and black communities, which I, I think is so important. Over the weekend, um, some friends organized a, I think they called it a rally, but it really looked like a beautiful performance um, with various, um, there's drag queens, there was comedians, there was um, political activists, there were sex workers. 
um, at an amphitheater um, along the East River. And it was organized by a couple of nightlife collectives, um, Bubble Tea, which is a queer Asian nightlife collective and Poppy Juice, um, which is another POC nightlife collective. And they organized this really beautiful gathering um, centering queer Asians, um, also queer Asian sex workers. And it looks so beautiful to me. Like I, I need to actually sit down and watch the entire Twitch because I've only seen um, these snippets on Instagram. But I don't know, I think it really just spoke to the ways in which the rage and the fear and the anger needs to exist and needs an outlet. But ultimately, we also want to transform it into something else. We want to transform it into healing, into community, into art in a lot of ways too, right? Like the, the just, just being able to see the beauty that came out of all this pain, um, I think is another side to it that I found really touching. It is. And, and you're right in that there is, you know, the beauty and the creativity and the, the different ways of expressing oneself that can come out of these, these incidences where, again, you see the strength of a community on display. It's, it's remarkable uh, in the face of adversity to see people turning to such creative outlets to express themselves and try to, to bring about change. It's not easy to do, but I, I tip my hat to those of the community who are picking up the, the mantle and, and running with it. And a lot of these conversations I have with the guests they take me outside of what I'm used to. And it's always a good perspective to add when you learn something about how people view the world and how they're going through their experiences. So in that vein, I appreciate your honesty and your candor and just pulling back the curtain a little bit, you know, from your perspective. Well, thank you for, yeah, asking the questions and giving me the space to think through these things. I, I mean, I don't think that anything I have to say or my perspective on anything is like necessarily groundbreaking, but I think it it always helps to reiterate and to hear it from as many different sides and from as many different people as we can, because I don't think that you can hear it enough at this point. Well, keep on keeping on with all the great work that you're doing down on the island. We will not send any of our snow from central New York your way uh, anytime soon, but I know that uh, your future is going to continue to be bright as both a freelance journalist and whatever else the future holds for you. And again, thank you so much for making the time to uh, share your perspective today. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.